It's almost universal. Whether it's two wheels, four wheels, 18 wheels, no wheels. So many of us have a special memory involving a vehicle or a story about a car we've loved. Even if you can't tell a crankshaft from a drive shaft, I want to hear the story of the vehicle that moved you. I'm Blake Jackson, and this is Autobiography. Time for a new episode of the Autobiography Podcast. And a few weeks ago, we were lucky enough to take a field trip out to the Reynolds Alberta Museum in Wetaskiwin. If you haven't been there, make a point to do it. You're going to love it. It's palatial. It's... It's situated on 220 acres. The display space for this transportation museum is over 100,000 square feet, and it looks like they, they want to build more, too. They've got a little bit of everything out there, cars and trucks and planes and motorcycles and industrial equipment and, and farm machines and everything. And we started talking with the Reynolds Alberta Museum uh, because what they're doing and what we're doing are so similar. They really believe in the stories behind these vehicles and they want to make sure that those stories are curated. So we went out there, we had a big old chat with their head of restoration services, Darren Weiberg. Now, Darren is currently uh, in the final stages of restoring a 1958 Canada diesel truck, which we're going to hear about. But I want to tell you a little bit about the Reynolds Alberta Museum, so named because it was, it was the concern of Stan Reynolds. He was an Air Force veteran who actually built and ran the Wetaskiwin Airport and who at one point owned 13 auto dealerships across Alberta. Now, he loved cars. He was crazy for them. He donated a large part of his collection, and, and it makes me laugh. It's the large part, not the whole thing. 2,000 cars, 1,100 tractors, 500 trucks, 200 steam engines, 800 stationary engines, uh, 300 threshing machines, and 125 aircraft. Um, currently, the collection at the Reynolds Alberta Museum is over 600, no, Make that 6,600 vehicles. Stan Reynolds was actually inducted into the Order of Canada in 1999, with good reason. Um, again, make your way out to the Reynolds Alberta Museum. Um, if you love stories, if you love nostalgia, if you love learning about Canada and Alberta, it's a great place for you and your whole family, and let's hear about it now. Well, tell us about the truck you're working on right now. I started on this one three years ago, 1958 Canada diesel. Gonna gear down and tell you a little bit about the Canada diesel truck. And when I say a little bit, it's because that's all anyone really knows about these trucks, except for the experts at the Reynolds Alberta Museum who have been doing so much research. But even Google, if, if Google could come up with a, uh, an icon that's just a shrug, that's what I would have gotten when I was looking for it. Now, the Canada diesel truck was built by the Canadian Car and Foundry Company with the first, uh, the first model, the first truck unveiled July 1st, 1958. And then a few weeks after that, um, they quit. Not much is known. It had to do with the cancellation of some other projects in the company that we'll get around to. But how many were built? Uh, no one's sure. How many were sold? No one's sure. Uh, what, uh, no one's sure about anything, but that's uh, what we're gonna dive into a little bit here learned quite a bit about the company that built it and it's 
a working life here in, in Alberta since we started. Tell us a bit about the company and, and why you chose this one to, to focus on. We, we did choose this truck because we're supposed to be saving Canadian artifacts. When it's got Canada written on the hood, I think we're pretty safe to say that we've got a pretty significant Canadian artifact. We find out more and more how significant it is. Not every Canadian story is a, is a success. Eh? Mm -hmm. This machine had all the potential to be a real successful highway tractor. Yeah, you know, like diesel-powered highway tractors were not common in 1958. It's got a Leyland, English Leyland diesel in it, five-speed Spicer transmission, two-speed Eaton axle, heavy. I think the GVW on it is 31,000 pounds. So good, sturdy, heavy truck. What we are supposing happened Canada Car and Foundry had been a Canadian company since before the before 1900. They built railway cars and buses and, and streetcars and things like that, big heavy stuff. Mm. 1956, I believe it was, Avro buys Canada Car. They're building these trucks. 1957, we have a copy of their business report for the end, end of the year, and they're really optimistic about what this truck is going to do. And then the Avro Aero kind of drags this truck down with it. Avro was one of the biggest employers in Canada at that time. Going to pop the shoot and tell you about the Avro Aero. <sighs> okay, here goes. There's still a lot of people in Canada who are really upset about the cancellation of the Avro Aero. More, uh, more formally known as the Avro Canada CF-105 Aero. Now, what happened was that in the 50s, there was the real threat of the Russians sending bombers over the Arctic Circle to drop nuclear bombs on Canada and the U.S. So the military started designing this plane, which when a bomber was detected, it would shoot up fast as hell and, and go and shoot this Russian bomber down. Now, I should mention that they also in intended this... Uh, plane to be equipped with nuclear-tipped rockets. So I'm, I'm not sure how that would have gone over, uh, shooting these things down over the Canadian prairie with nuclear-tipped rockets. But anyways, the Avro Arrow was at the time the most advanced aircraft uh, ever come up with, able to fly over 10 miles high and twice the speed of sound. A lot of people are still really upset, as I said, that uh, it was canceled because so many of our engineers actually left Canada after the cancellation of the project. They went to work with NASA uh, for the moon landings. Now, some people say that JFK bullied Diefenbaker into a buying American plane. Some people said that uh, the Russians uh, interfered and had the project canceled and then took the plans to make their MiG planes, but no one's really sure too much about that but legend still persists that one of the prototypes for the plane got away and sits uh ready to make a debut once again and and the this truck was made out of just outside of montreal so it, it's an interesting canadian story then and the truck itself we think when this one's done we'll have the only one the only one in the world. We haven't found another one. We did hear two years ago, oh yeah, there's a guy in Saskatchewan. He collects trucks. He's got a whole yard full. He had one and it's our parts truck. And the rest that we said they were, that they said were Canada diesels were all Leyland's. So these Leyland um, engines, that's the reason Mel Gray brought this truck. And he went down east to pick it up and drove it back to Edmonton. And the reason that he wanted this truck was because of that Leyland diesel. He had experience with them. That truck I saw on the internet, the, our parts truck, and I was just, that was the only other one I've ever seen. 
and we've got them both sitting here in two bays. They're sturdy looking, tough looking trucks, eh? It's an interesting amalgam because there is that English motor, mm -hmm. English frame, and then it's a North American front axle, North American rear axle, North American transmission, starter, generator, the, the uh, air compressor and the brakes are Bendix, Bendix Westinghouse. That cab is the same as an R model international. Now you got uh, $200,000, you go and you buy yourself a 600 horsepower Peterbilt or Kenworth. The potential was there for our Canadian company to be building these things, say, eh? because this one was made for our Canadian mark, our, our Canadian climate. It's got an air controlled uh, winter front, you know, which is when you're dealing with diesel engines in 25 below, that's a pretty interesting thing to have or a handy thing to have. It's actually got a, an air-assisted clutch. The clamping force on this clutch is, is enormous. It's got 500 foot-pounds of torque. Good, heavy, heavy stuff. Just the way this thing was broken up everywhere. There wasn't one good part left on mm. it. They, it had been beat to it its last breath. They had obviously been maintaining it still because like the back brakes, we, re we reused the ones that were on there because they were perfect. And the steering box had been rebuilt and the, and the kingpins mm -hmm. were, in, were in good shape. So, so they were maintaining it. And one of the other really interesting parts, this thing, I don't know how many miles it would have, eh? but they were our rugged miles. Going to Grand Prairie from Edmonton in, mm -hmm. the, in the late 50s and early 60s. And now we have a volunteer here that worked for Leyland Motors in England. And he said, yeah, the reason those things got a fantastic reputation because these engines for longevity, because that is a nitrided crankshaft. It is cooked in an atmosphere of pure nitrogen. And it makes that crankshaft hard, hard, hard. Hey, so that's, you can beat the crap out of it and it'll just keep on going. Every project, you learn a little bit about something, right? And that's what's kept this work rewarding for so many years is every three years I get a new job. The thing that I would say, one thing these things teach you, be careful what you say yes to. Hmm. Because it, the commitment is enormous. You know, we'd better have an engaging story and better have a story that we want to tell out in the gallery. Because there's nothing more insulting than investing all this time, all this money, and then the thing sits in the warehouse. This is the first heavy truck we've done. This is the second diesel engine we've done. So these, these last two that I've built, I think really encapsulate Canadian, the things that, the, the, the Canadian artifacts that we should be saving. I think I told you there the other day, the D100 Versatile, we've got serial number 26. So Versatile starts building tractors in 19, 66, they had built 25 before ours. Mm -hmm. They built less than 100 that first year. Now that's a Canadian success story. In 1977, they sold 33,000 tractors all around the world and they're still selling tractors all around the world. Again, this truck had that potential. Yeah. But our history is, you know, everybody knows about the Avro Arrow too, eh? Diefen Bakers canceled the project. There goes our Canada truck. Yeah. <laughs> Arnie Weisbrock is a volunteer and he's done the bulk of the research on this. Arnie has found sponsors that will uh, have helped us with this thing. That injection pump? That's been 
more well-traveled than I have. It's been, I think it went to England three times. We took it to a, a fuel shop. They opened it up and I thought, oh, this thing is shot. It's full of water, Every, all the cams are rusted, everything's seized up, and then they broke it up even more. So we got another pump and then we were going to get them married together. And these are CAV pumps from England. So we send it to a fuel shop in England. And they send it back and say, yeah, you guys are out of luck. So then we get this truck, okay? we get the parts truck, and we send that over hmm. to England. And they send it back, forget it, finished. One of my good friends is, uh, runs uh, on track, fellow over there named Rob Ball. He invested all kinds of time into getting that pump working. And James, my friend, donated the work to the, to the place. The grill bars were cast by Norwood Foundry, free of charge. Well, and you know what, when you start naming specific companies and people, like, <laughs> there's just so many. There's so many. Our, our local people here in Wetaskiwin have been fantastic supporters of not only the museum, but this project as well. For whatever reason, this thing that seems to have struck a nerve, okay, and get things that maybe are a little more difficult on other restorations to get. And when one of them has helped. Dennis Chance so that was, was, was around the corner. He's camera shy now. I've been here 34 years. Dennis has been here 17. The difference is Dennis doesn't take a paycheck home. Even the new guys, like Wayne and I, worked together for 34 years. That's the people side of these things. Eh? Mm -hmm. You don't understand when you look at it done how dedicated you had to be. Every piece has gone, been gone through and cleaned up and, and put right back to the day it was born. And I was mentioning to you before, I'm just as proud of the flaws that we leave, we deliberately leave, as that, you know, I made those doors and you can't see waves and ripples in them. They made the roof, made this fender here. Eh? It's, uh, so if you're gonna invest that kind of time, that kind of money, you better have something to say. <laughs> If you had to estimate how many man hours have gone into this truck so far, I know it's hard. There's been five of us working on it for a year. We, uh, we do estimate the, the time in the thousands of hours. Okay? How much is left? When you get to, so you're putting the jewelry on, like we are now, we're 90% finished. So this is, there can be no beating and banging now. Everything's careful, careful. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> see that body rotisserie? Yes. My good friend Dennis saved the day here, I think it was last week. That pin that holds the thing from flipping over yep. broke. And our cap just about flipped onto its roof. Oh no. And he, he caught it, I was up in the office there. I heard the door slam and I thought, hmm, that's odd. <laughs> and here the, he, he caught it before it flipped over, okay? So that would have made me a little, less than happy if I had to start, start over on that. <laughs> and where did you learn these skills? I have some really important people to thank. Uh, Jeff Broadbent and Ted Walkley, fellows that apprenticed in, in uh, England. Both showed me, Jeff showed me the welding, the butt welding, and, the, and Ted showed me the metal finishing. That is another part of the interest of this job is trying to preserve not only the machines, but the workmanship that went into building them. Like on this truck, I'm gonna be just as proud of the flaws we leave as the, the fact that, you know, I made that fender and it's nice and smooth and you don't see any ripples, eh? and there's no fill. I started here in 87. 
I haven't had the necessity to use plastic body fill yet. On any restoration, no bondo. No, no, no bondo. Not on the. Not on the. I can't say that I haven't used it. We had a one of our volunteers bashed bashed into the our fire truck. <laughs> And it was, the car was full of Bondo already, so I just slapped some mud on it and kicked it back out the door. Because, you know, but where my passion is, is these, these ground up restorations. And, and as of yet, I haven't had need, and I'm 61 years old, so I guess I don't really need to use this stuff. So who, who owned this truck? Uh, Mel Gray uh, first brought it to Edmonton in 1958. And the reason I know that is my good friend Dave Widener was standing in the window with a friend of his, and I could tell his friend was really excited about this truck. He was pointing, waving his hands, and he wanted to get down here in the shop. Thank goodness I went up there to visit with them, because that fellow's name was Al Litke, and he worked for Mel Gray when this truck came into Edmonton, and he sent us all kinds of handwritten letters on on how this truck was used and 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 its first days in Edmonton. And it was hauling freight from Edmonton to uh, Grand Prairie. But he remembers this bright red truck coming into Edmonton and everybody was excited about it. And he said the reason that Mel Gray bought it is because he was loyal to these Leyland engines. He knew that these things were tough and that he had this contract to haul freight to Grand Prairie. And uh, he, he went back east, as this is the way uh, Al put it, and drove this thing to Edmonton. So you're putting the jewelry on. And by jewelry, of course, you need the door handles and the, the chrome. And and yeah, I was just putting the grab handles on uh, when you guys came. And I better remember to tighten them up, eh? <laughs> just looking on top of the cab, there's three lights. There's, there's an orange one in the middle, or amber, I guess, and then green ones on either side. What are those lights for? They're just clearance lights. Okay. That's more jewelry. Uh, yes. Oh, You would just be absolutely shocked to know how much time Jason invested in uh, making those clearance lights. There's probably parts from 12 different lights in those three. If there's one thing that we are is tenacious. Because that's part of the challenge, is overcoming the, the roadblocks, eh? How are we going to come, come across, uh, you know, how are we going to get around this, this problem? We, and, and we always do, eh? So with the truck being almost done, who gets to take the first drive? Arnie and I. Oh, it'll, it'll be the whole crew. Eh? What we want to do next spring fire this up, put a little black smoke in the air, yeah. and then go to everybody that's helped us and uh, shake their hand, get a, you know, do the, do the picture thing. Yeah. That will uh, be my last day. Your last day. This is your last project. This is the last one. Tell you what, eh? It's even the perfect color, the cherry on top of a semi-productive career. <laughs> <laughs> Darren Weiberg, restoring the Canada diesel truck, one of the only ones left on the planet. 
Uh, if you haven't, uh, again, been out to the Reynolds Alberta Museum, make a point to do it. I'm so serious about this. We're going back for more interviews out there, too. There is so much happening. Uh, there's so much um, so much in the archives and so much currently being displayed. Take the whole family out there. You're going to learn. And it's not just for the quote-unquote car people. There's stories. There's stories about Alberta. And no matter no matter your understanding of vehicles, you're going to see something that makes you smile a lot. We'll post all the information that you need uh, on, on our social media about the Reynolds Alberta Museum. I'm Blake Jackson. Thanks for joining us for the Autobiography Podcast. And there's more to come from the past into the future with more stories. Next guest on the Autobiography Podcast, Mr. Eric Novak from Modern Media Perspectives, a video producer, TV host, writer, blogger. He's creator of the environmental website EnviroDad and one of Canada's few dedicated eco and family-focused automotive journalists. So Eric Novak, tell us about the vehicle that moved you. The first car I ever owned, I actually bought it new. I had help from an uncle of mine who uh, was willing to get me a car. It was in 1991 and I, you know, I just leaving university. So I actually bought a 1991 Toyota Tercel. Going to pause for a second and tell you about the Toyota Tercel, a subcompact made from 1978 to 1999. Five generations and five different body styles. Now, the name Tercel derives from the Latin word for one-third. As for the Tercel, it's because it was one-third smaller than the Corolla, much like the same way the word Tercel refers to a male falcon which is one-third smaller than the female Falcon. And I, I would have loved to have been in that marketing meeting when they were figuring that out. Was the Tercel sexy? No. Fast? No. Sporty? No. Well-handling? Nope. Attractive? Nope. Great in the snow? Nope. Roomy? Nope. But it never broke down. The Tercel would last forever. And you would find that parents love to buy the Tercel for their kids. Why? Because in 21 years of its manufacture, no one ever got laid in a Tercel. Mm-hmm. Good old 1.4 liter engine. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, all of 85 horsepower um, I called it the little engine that thought it could. Um, <laughs> and I, I remember trying to take it camping one time and loading it up. And, uh, you know, I, north of Toronto in Algonquin Park, I was uh, with some friends. And uh, one of my friends had actually a 69 GTO all revved up. And, and, I was, and he was blown away that I was keeping up with him on some of the highways. And, you know, my little Tercel was screaming, but, you know, he was still having a great joy out of it. <laughs> So, I mean, that may have been the start. I still actually remember a funny anecdote about that. I'll never forget because when people talk about, you know, buying cars and negotiating and, you know, what are you going to throw in for this price and stuff? I, I'll never forget how I was getting close to that point where I was almost ready to shake my hand with the dealer and, and we're just within a few bucks. And then he finally said as a last token offer, he says, I'll tell you what, uh, take this price, I'll bring it down 50 bucks and I'll even throw in the optional passenger side mirror. <laughs> <laughs> And I went, wait, wait a minute, that's an option? <laughs> I mean, obviously, I took the passenger mirror, but I remember not long after seeing a Tercel on the road, maybe someone didn't take that option, and they only had a, a mirror on the driver's side. I mean, it's a different era. I mean, to yeah. think now that the the safety that we have, I mean, we're even going to a point, almost full circle, where you know, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to have cars that don't have any 
side view mirrors, period, because they're all built in and sensors and they won't yeah. be needed because, hmm. you know, the computers are going to do that for you. But yeah, so it begins there. So have you owned an EV? I've been an automotive journalist now for uh, a little over 10 years. I actually got into it sort of by accident because I was, uh, I had just started up a, a business. Uh, I've been for about four or five years and I was an accidental entrepreneur. And I, so I didn't have that sort of nest egg to, to, you know, rely on in the beginning as, as you know, the, the business slowly grew. So uh, I had a leased vehicle. I had a 2007 Nissan Altima that was coming up due around 2011. And, you know, money was really tight. And I, and I, automotive journalists, when they review vehicles, automakers will they'll let them have a vehicle for a week at a time. They do their thoughts, write the reports or whatever. And there were some who, so long as they could find a compelling reason, they would just one weekend take another vehicle. And I, hmm. And almost as a bit of a survival strategy, I thought, God, I wonder if I could convince them, you know, that I've got an audience and I've got this market that I could sort of, you know, not need a car. Ten years later, I've in that whole time, there's been about five or six weeks where I haven't had one. So the answer to your question is I don't own an EV now or any car because up to this point, I haven't needed to. That's genius. It was a survival technique. And, and around that time, I was also, you know, building more of that environmental side as a, as a dad. I had, I mean, nobody at that time was really talking about um, the growth of battery electrics and hybrids and electrics. And I was this dad. I had a family. I was thinking about the environment and I could provide this different angle. And and sure enough, every time I sort of approached them, they said, yeah, we like that angle. We can give you some stuff. And I mean, there weren't enough hybrids alone at that time are electrics to sort of keep it going so obviously family size vehicles and you know family suitability kept it going but yeah that's how you get into something like this are evs a viable choice for vehicles in canada are they going to hit the market and have as much a takeover as some people think they will um and how long uh, can can we expect until we see more and they're normalized well, 100%, the answer is yes. The biggest obstacle that we have today getting into mainline sort of normalcy of EVs and, and plug-in hybrids is not the technology per se. It's rather our own perceptions of it. You know, we don't really have a knowing problem so much as we have a thinking problem. In Canada, what does the what does a, a gas-powered automobile mean? I mean, we're a wide spread out country, you know, here in Canada, we obviously have a certain percentage of our, our GDP attached to, you know, attached to oil and attached to that. So, you know, we have that resistance, but the reality is what EVs can do today in terms of uh, meeting the standards of living and quality of life that uh, people are accustomed to, uh, the vast majority of ones that are coming out today can meet all of that. And they can actually do it cheaper in terms of cost of ownership than anything we have on the road that's gas. But money talks, and and we still have this psychological sort of uh, uh, feeling that because the purchase price is still higher, I mean, batteries cost, um, we still think they're too expensive. But even without the, the incentives, if you look at how uh, a vehicle's ownership cost is not just purchasing, right? It's, it's gas or, or energy and maintenance and insurance. And I've written about before how uh, when you take the purchase price into the full equation, like energy costs right now, the price of gas, uh, you know, like here in Ontario, if I'm charging up versus fueling up, I'm saving about 90%. So there's there's huge savings all around. 
there's one story I can tell. And there's another example I can give. Uh, I had a neighbor who uh, used to be a pol- he was a police officer and, and he uh, I had one of the very I think it was the Ford Focus EV, one of the early generations. He walked up and he said, you know, I, I've never been in an EV before. I said, OK, well, let's go for a ride. So he gets in the passenger seat. I said, no, no, get behind the wheel. So we go, you know, we take off and we go for 10, 15 minutes, highway driving and city driving. And we pull back into the driveway and, and I look at him and I said, what'd you think? And he looked at me and said, it drives just like a car. Hmm. Like, forget this idea. It's a golf cart. So, I mean, and in fact, if you like your performance, you know, we all know about torque curves and horsepower. Well, you know, you've got to take a second or two in a gas engine to hit that maximum torque curve. A battery doesn't have that. So you get all the torque as soon as you touch. If you've ever been on like a launch roller coaster, it's it's literally like a rocket. And from performance, it's fine. And then, of course, there's always the other impediment where, okay, well, I still love the sound, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I love that that carburetor. I love the naturally aspirated growl of a V8. And that's all cool. I totally get that and I appreciate it. But in technology, that's just like an app away. There's, there's even some new EVs coming out of, uh, I think, Mercedes where – you know, what do you want it to sound like? Do you want it to sound like a V8 or a, or a you know, a bi-turbo AMG? I mean, you it's just really funneling sound in and out. So it's it's not truly the same. But I mean, whatever you want to feel, they can replicate it. You could even make it sound like the Millennium Falcon if need be. Absolutely. Look, you know what? There's so many things we can do. Another example, and it's not, you know, uh, engine related, but you know how with GPS, right, when you put in uh, your directions and then you have that lovely female computer voice, right, yeah. who, you know, tells you turn left, turn right. And if you miss the turn, right, what do they always say? They always say, well, recalculating. And it's always polite. I swear, I'm convinced that there's a market out there for having a system <laughs> that if you miss the turn, it gets mad at you, right? It gets <laughs> agitated. Can you imagine after the second or third time, it says, excuse me. I said, turn what, why am I even here? You don't care. You don't listen to me. Get out of here, right? People would buy that. <laughs> they, they actually had Beyonce voicing the GPS for a while, but uh, there were too many crashes because she just kept saying to the left, to the left. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, listen, hey, I'm a dad joke guy, <laughs> so I'm going to have to use that. <laughs> dad jokes are glorious. Dad jokes rule. And every time, the best reward I can ever get of a dad joke is one of my kids going, bruh, dad, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the worse, the better. <laughs> so the more painful the expression, the prouder I feel. So in all your time reviewing EVs and, and I guess not owning a car because you always have uh, a tester in your driveway, what's an EV that sticks out for you? The first time I was ever uh, in one of the dual motor uh, Tesla Model S, and then they had these different drive modes and they had like insane mode and now ludicrous mode. And I remember the first time launching in one of these things and I, I literally think I, the byline when I when I wrote about it was like zero to hundred. Holy, sh-, you know, bleep and bleep, right? <laughs> but today, it's funny to watch the um, the the Ford Mustang uh, sort of uh, aficionados sort of scoff at the idea that there's this thing called the Mustang Mach E. But you know, you get behind it, and I and there is a Mustang GT or a Mach E GT coming out, and you know that's going to be zero to hundred in three and a half seconds, and it's yeah. it's just. You know, that type of performance, like you still get the heart race. Henry Ford said once, if I asked the customer what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah. And progress yeah. marches on. I mean, we're, we're not driving steam engines anymore. That, that had to happen. We came by internal combustion engines because 
because of progress and because of moving forward. And that's just the well, way it is. Well, if you want to go even further back, motorized vehicles in the 19th century were actually, oh, first of all, they were all battery to begin with. They were electric vehicles to begin with. They were almost done like mail order. What, what really gave us the switch over to internal combustion engines was Henry Ford and the Model T and, and the assembly line at Rouge and, you know, in Dearborn when they figured out that they could do that mass production. And he chose, you know, an internal combustion engine. That was kind of the death knell of batteries at the time. I've so, heard tell and, and stories of uh, conspiracies way back in the days of Henry Ford, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Conspiracies to keep the electric vehicle down and and really promote internal combustion and gas and diesel. There's always that around, and and I guess you only have to point to back in the 80s and 90s with the General Motors and the EV1, right? It was the sort of this first idea of an electric car that was meant, mm-hmm. to, you know, the the rebirth of the EV again in that period of time, and all of a sudden the EV program, the EV1 program, which was launching and people are starting to get excited about it, was suddenly canceled and killed. Bob Lutz was the, the CEO of General Motors at the time. And, and um, I, I have actually met him a couple of times at, at, at the LA Auto Show in Detroit. And, you know, he's this really over the top character. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, of suspicions as to who it was that silently killed it. Just like, you know, where did the Avro Arrow go? Mysteriously, things mm. happen. And Bob Lutz, funny enough, when the last time I talked to him, he was no longer at GM. He still didn't believe in climate change, but he started this company called Viva, where they basically took uh, you know, GM Silverados and, and uh, trucks, and they converted them. They put a battery in it. They put the tonneau cover was basically solar panels, and they became work trucks. And the thing is with these work trucks and the F-150 Lightning, the electric uh, F-150 coming out next year is is like an amazing truck for, for contractors because not only, you know, you can run your tools from the truck, um, and even this F-150 uh, electric, if you're ever in a situation remotely where you have a blackout, if you have the right adapter, you just reverse the polarity and all of a sudden your truck powers the house like a backup generator. So, mm. and this is what Lutz realized. So he has this company now that, you know, he, he may still didn't like it, but now he sees he can make money from it. So maybe it's really all about the money. We're seeing all kinds of capabilities in these cars. Of course, there's things that we've never even thought about, but maybe from your position, you've you've heard tell of upcoming features in these cars. And, and what can we expect in the future from EVs? I mean, I know as a parent what I'd like to see. I'd like to have a bloody privacy screen between us and the kids. And I want a cappuccino maker. And I want, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, let's maybe even a lavatory for a little flushing. Who knows? Have you been in a self-driving vehicle before? I have down in uh, Ford's uh, in Dearborn at their research and development labs. And, and uh, I got to sit in uh, a sort of modified Ford Fusion. It was a prototype, but this thing was fully capable of autonomous driving without any inputs. So we weren't allowed to be in the front. Engineers were still in the front taking computer readouts because it was an ongoing prototype. But myself and another journalist, we got to sit in the back seat and we spent about 10 minutes, 15 minutes driving not on a private track, but in live traffic. So the, the sensors were, would detect. I mean, it, 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 was, it was really kind of, uh, it was really kind of something that took notice of since, I mean, if a vehicle, there's all these variables in driving. If someone's making a left turn, even pedestrians, are they gonna cross? Are they gonna jaywalk? We, we know the sensors can work. Now maybe they have to find what is that right. We all know that the greatest cause of accidents and death and everything is not the machines, it's us. So. Yeah. You know, the, the people who are big proponents of it say, in theory, I mean, if everybody drove one of these and, 
you know, there's there's a lot of you could argue there would never be. We'd have no congestion. We'd have no need for traffic lights. That's yeah. what they say theoretically. Anyway, and cars never drink. They never look at their phones. Right. They tell if you watch Knight Rider, they tell the odd joke. Right. You know. That was a great show. Wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I still think of it every now and again. So okay, okay. Uh, on the lighter side, what's your favorite movie car of all time? I'm still, I'm still, you know. Uh, um, the love bug, man, come on. Cool. <laughs> he had all kind of characters, but no, I mean, there's lots of, I mean, you know, we can, we can look at, uh, Steve McQueen's bullet or, mm-hmm. or, or the, the Ferrari and Ferris Bueller. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> thinking of the reaction of, of, uh, the, the, the parking attendants going across, um, <laughs> yeah, cars and culture, you know, there's so much of it. Do you think that car culture will continue with electric vehicles? Yes, but as with everything, it will evolve because... Yeah. Um, you know, I'm 52. Um, our generation saw it as an extension of adulthood, of our independence, of our ability. Whereas I think the generation now, they acknowledge the need for transit, but look, their expectations are, I just need it on my phone. I need to do a couple of clicks and it shows up. Like the, the idea of ownership isn't the same. Mm. Um, I think they'll still be an affinity for what they become. And there's still always going to be style points and stuff. And I don't think we're ever going to get rid of the ability to just get into a car and drive. I noticed that kids don't, don't drive the lap. I don't know if that was a thing when you were a kid, we had the lap in my town and that's what you did on a, every night. Yeah. Oh, of course. Um, I mean, if we really want to go, um, uh, down a different path, I mean, nowadays, you know, Bench seats had certain conveniences, right, in the front, whereas, <laughs> I mean, now you have these giant, you know, center consoles, with, you know, and it, it, it makes certain things that we may have experienced in our youth a little more challenging, so, you know, or so I've been told. My favorite thing with, with a bench seat. Okay, picture a Saskatchewan yeah. small town, 800 people. Yeah. You wait till you're in a, in a pickup truck, regular cab. Uh, with a couple buddies and make sure that you are on the, the far passenger side. So there's the driver, there's yep. the middle guy, and then you. Oh, yeah. And wait yep. till you're driving down Main Street where everyone is. Um, well, take off your seatbelt and like duck down under the dash so it looks like oh, the driver. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, these are the things. And yep. I remember look, when, I was in, uh, when I was in Little League Baseball, I played like I was 12 years old. Our coach... Um, one coach that I had had a, a pickup truck and we would go from park to park all, you know, 10 kids in the back in, you know, in, in the bed of, of the truck and, mm-hmm. and not in the cab. And, and I had another, uh, friends who, whose dad had one of the old country squire wagons. I mean, like w- we'd sit all back there, you know, we'd be playing cards or we'd be joking around. It's, it's obviously a different era. Eric Novak from envirodad.com. Um, I'm grateful for your time today. I know you've had to do some shooting, this afternoon as well. And, and I hope I can have you on again. This was a really interesting chat and I'm, I'm just grateful for your, your perspective. Yeah. Hey, technology means I'm just a phone call away. Eric Novak Envirodad talking about the, the future to come with EVs. Will it happen? When will it happen? How fast will it happen? How fast can we adapt? It is interesting. So thanks very much to Eric. I'll post all the links and, and all the info you need uh, to get to his website and his writings on our social media. And of course, we talked to Darren at the Reynolds Alberta Museum. Just had a great time out there, and I can't wait to get back. I'm Blake Jackson. Thank you for listening to the Autobiography Podcast. 
This is for you, too. If you've got a story about the vehicle that moved you, I would love to hear about it. As always, the Autobiography Podcast was recorded at Communal Creative Studios. See you next time. Till then, keep your wheels on the road and a tarp on your load.